I'd like to call upon our brother Al Marquith to give us the words of exhortation for this morning. Thank you, Brother Sean, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, our brother Sean last week, he um, did an excellent job, and he built us up through his exhortation uh, about John the Baptist, and he used that man as a vehicle for his exhortation. A brother of unique stature, one whom our Lord declared that there was no greater prophet than that of John. And so we learned some valuable lessons. Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, with, um, with that backdrop, we'd like to take a moment and look at the other brother, John, the apostle. He came up in our readings last night, ever so briefly, he and his brother James. And it's an important brother to take a look at because here's a brother that we learn about spiritual development. Here is somebody that we can look to and perhaps relate to uh, in so many different ways. He was the author, uh, and by divine guidance, of a gospel record, three epistles, and it was to him whom the Lord gave the revelation. All right, so quite uh, evident of his mark in the New Testament writings. He was the younger brother of James, we know, and he appears to have a similar temperament, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and there seems to be a very close bond between these two natural brothers as well. They, they seem to always be joined at the hip, which is a, a very good thing to see about two brothers. And they were given by Jesus a name, Bonerges, which is, it says in chapter 3, sons of thunder. Now, we're going to take a little look at that, uh, that term, sons of thunder. But just as a side note, and I have to be careful because I start going through this, you kind of get these little side notes and you start digressing and you miss the whole point of your talk. But it's interesting, the word thunder, bronte, if that's how you pronounce it in the Greek, so excuse me for that, is paired with another word, geneme, to take place. And it means it had thundered. There was thunder. That's quite interesting that John uses that phrase, there was thunder, it had thundered, eight times in the Revelation. I don't know if there's any connection, coincidence. I'll leave that for you to, uh, to do some digging on. Otherwise, I'll just go off in a tangent here. and uh, We'll miss the point of uh, today's talk. John was also noted as a very close companion to the Apostle Peter in the first 12 chapters of Acts. We see him with Peter pretty, uh, pretty steady there. And they, James along with John both, were partners with Peter as fishermen. Right? They, they were in a business together, it appears. He was also, and here's a phrase that's used by some, but we're going to take a look at this as well. He was also a member of what some would call the Lord's most intimate circle, along with Peter and James, sometimes Andrew. But we're going to comment on that phrase, his most intimate circle. And for many, when you think about John, if you were to describe John, the apostle, how would you describe him? Some would say he was the apostle of love. Indeed, he wrote more than any other New Testament writer on the importance of love. In particular, he had emphasis on Christ, the love of Christ, the love for God, Christ's love for his brethren, and the love for one another, which is supposed to be the hallmark of true believers. That's all contained in his writings. And we will see that it wasn't always this way with the Apostle John. Love was a quality that he had learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not something that came naturally to this brother. Our exhortation 
this morning is trying to take form of a lessons and lessons that we can glean from the life of John as he's growing in spiritual maturity with the Lord. Presumably, from what we can see at least in the record, we have John as a young brother, maybe peer age to the Lord Jesus Christ, so somewhere around 30 perhaps, and obviously zealous for the truth. There's no doubt about that. And we start to see, as we go through the different accounts, what we'll call growth. In the course of his life with the Lord, we'll see how the Lord Jesus instructs him and he transforms him from being a one-dimensional brother. So all of us have to consider that for ourselves. Am I approaching the truth as a one-dimensional brother or sister? And one who then comes to understand that he has to grow in the measure and the stature to understand that he belongs to the fullness of Christ and that he would incorporate all that learning that he gets from the Lord to balancing those principles in his life. It can be the whole man in Christ. What are some aspects of thunder? Let's just start out there. What's some aspects of thunder? Well, first of all, it can be loud. All right? You know, yeah, thunderstorm is loud. It can have a rolling kind of build-up sound, and it can be very terrifying for some when they hear it, uh, at night especially. And at other times, it's just a sudden sound that, that comes across but you know it when you hear it. You know thunder when you hear it. And so John was always very clear when he spoke. There's no doubt about that. And it also comes across something powerful, distinct and powerful. So those words kind of characterize and help us understand John, right? This man, John, he is passionate, he is zealous, he is actually personally ambitious, and he's very confident as a young man in all his relation to the truth. All of the New Testament writers, of all of them, John is the most black and white in how he writes, or seemingly black and white how he writes. Most everything appears to be cut and dry. There aren't too many gray areas with John. All you have to do is go through the gospel. All you have to do is go through the epistles. I'll just let me just list off a few in the gospel. He sets light against darkness, life against death, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of sin. We find the children of light against the children of the serpent, the judgment of the righteous against the judgment of the wicked, and the resurrection of life against the resurrection of condemnation. Receiving Christ, rejecting Christ. Fruit, fruitlessness. Obedience, disobedience. Love, hate. He loves dealing with the truth in absolutes. He understands the necessity of drawing a clear line. He continues in his epistles. We're either walking in the light or we're dwelling in darkness. We're either of God or of the world. We're either born of God. If we don't love, we are not born of God. He who does good is of God and he who does evil is not a seen of God or has not seen God. Very distinct. And yet, in all that distinctness, in all that clarity of thought that he had, when he finally wrote those words, all right, these words are actually the final maturing of the Apostle John. You say, well, it doesn't sound like he... he, he well, maybe it's mature because he's got it so, so exact. But in all of that, he knows and he understands very well 
that believers, that his brethren, will sin and fall short. In all of that absoluteness about the truth that he understands. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. He shows those contrasts. All right, out of his love for his brethren, they would not sin. See how clear the message is. We have, and if any man sins, so he knows it's still going to happen. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's where we go. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the covering. He is the atonement. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, he says. But before John finally understood that last quote, that last part that comes into his writings, we see him actually in his early days falling a bit short in how he applies the truth in his ministry or in his learning with the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't even call it ministry yet. So let's just take a brief walk with John. When we first see John, it's in uh, John chapter 1 and verses 35, 37. Don't have to turn it up. I'm not going to be there long, but you can go there. Um, he and Andrew are disciples of John the Baptist. And as soon as John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he must increase, I must decrease. He's the Lamb of God. John's got it. He's a quick study. right? He came to John the Baptist because he heard truth. And as soon as John identifies the Lord, he leaves John and he follows the Lord. It was the right thing to do. John wasn't offended. This wasn't a personality cult type of thing. This was getting it right. And so off he goes. He's following the path of truth. And John's love for the truth is very, very evident in his writings. 25 times in the gospel, he uses that Greek word for truth. 20 times more in his epistles, he uses that word truth. He wrote in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children... Walk in truth. This is written as a much older John. And it shows that throughout his life he kept this continued focus on the truth. But let's go back to his early days. So he's now following the Lord. He's, and we see him with James and Peter and Andrew. And he's listed as the first four names in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke's Gospel. When the twelve are mentioned, those four are always at the front. And it's interesting, Judas is always at the back. So a natural assumption is those four are a little more special. They're up front. Judas was a little less special. He was at the end. But that's not necessarily you know, the case, as we'll see. However, they might have thought themselves to be more special of greater leadership qualities, perhaps. They're high, more highly regarded. Certainly, one of the things we see about uh, John and James and Peter in particular, coming out of the names of Sons of Thunder, of two of them, and Peter, impetuous, as we might say, they're all bold. They're all bold and they're all zealous. Um, 
maybe even a bit more than most of the others. And we also see it's Peter, James, and John in Mark 9, which we'll come to in our readings this week, and then the parallel in Luke 9, that they're the ones selected, selected particularly, to go with the Lord to the Mount of Transfiguration. To see the vision of the kingdom. Now that's special. That's special. And we also see it's these three, after they've, they've been in that upper room and they've had that supper, and he's gone out to the garden, all the twelve were there, and then three of them he separates out as he goes to pray. It's Peter, James, and John. And he tells them to watch. Special. Now focusing on John specifically, and it might apply for the others as well, but those other two, did he think all this was because of his zeal and because of his passion for the truth? Or that the, law, the Lord saw in him something better than what he saw in his other brethren? Something better. Perhaps, and I'll put it to you, brothers and sisters, by selecting these three, in particular, to come up to the mountain and to go out to pray. That it was that these three actually had the most growing to do. And then indeed some extracurricular class time with the Lord to teach them some more things was needed. Oh, you're special, all right. But you have some growing to do. If we go back into Mark chapter 9, at verses 5 and 6, um, they're, they're up on the mountain, this mountain of transfiguration, and it's, a, it's an amazing sight. I mean, I can't even begin to, to fathom you know, what that experience might have been like. And it says here, And his raiment, verse 3, became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller on the earth can whiten them. And there appeared unto them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered, they said, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say. For they were sore afraid. All of them. He didn't know what to say, so he just said something. We'll make three tabernacles. Blurted it out. Sounds good. But wasn't thought through. Of course, then God speaks. This is my beloved son. This is the one. This is the one. They were sore afraid. One of the sons of thunder was there. John and James. He wasn't thundering now. He was awestruck. The Lord brought him up there to teach him something. And then comes an even bigger test now in verse 8. And suddenly when they looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And when they were come down from the mountain, he charged them 
that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now you can't even share what you've seen. This was for you right now. It will be for others later on. But this was for you to start growing. There's some development that has to happen here. Luke's record goes on further. It says, they were afraid to ask him about the saying when they came down. Because they didn't know what it meant until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. You know, to grow, you can tell just by that phrase that they were afraid to ask him. To grow, we must not be afraid to say that I don't understand. Teach me. But he hadn't gotten there. John thought he had it figured out. He knew the Messiah was expected. All of them thought they had it figured out, right? They thought the Messiah was expected. They had read their scripture. They had it figured. Here he is, and he's going to set up the kingdom. All through the ministry of the Lord, they were waiting and waiting and waiting. He's going to set up the kingdom. And now this statement of, until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And now he's set back again. Just when you think you've got it all figured out, a couple steps back. But what we see in John is what we see in ourselves sometimes. At least I see it in myself some, more times than I'd like. John's actually a slow learner. You know, it doesn't come out in his writings, all right, but it does come out in his life before as the others give that. And I think he was blessed by the divine inspiration that he didn't have to relive all of that in his own gospel record, but it was taken care of for him. He was a slow learner. In my youth, all right, I'm a little older than I was a long time ago, uh, my uh, grandparents on my mother's side are Italian, and they had a nickname for me. Now, I should have asked Sister Vinci about this because my Italian is very rusty. So it does, if it doesn't sound like the right word, just forgive me, but I just remember it as Cabadost. Is that close? Hardhead. Anyway, it's close enough for me. I just remember the English translation um, is what they would say because I was very, very stubborn. And uh, some of you are probably thinking, and you haven't changed a whole lot either. You know, but we're working on it. We're working on it. Believe me. It, well, here's, this is John. You know, John's this way. He's got it figured out. In Luke's record, in chapter 9 here, uh, let's go to chapter 9. Sorry, yeah, I flipped on you to, uh, to, uh, to Luke chapter 9 and Mark's. It says, there arose a reasoning. Mark says dispute. This is chapter 9, verse 46. I guess I should go there too with you. Um, there arose a reasoning in verse uh, 46. Among them of which should be the greatest... Now, think about that. Uh, which should be the greatest? I probably said 46, and there is no 46, so forgive me on that. Probably back in Mark. Which should be the greatest? They had come down from the mountain. Pardon? It's right. It's right? Okay. Oh, that's because I'm looking. Yeah, I was looking at the wrong chapter. <coughs> so which should be the greatest? They had just come down from the mountain. They had just been awestruck. But you see, he told them not to talk about what they had seen. 
It doesn't mean, maybe, that they just can't be influenced by the fact that they were special to see this. So who started that conversation all right, about who should be the greatest? Maybe we were brought up there because we're special. Maybe because we're greater. And there was a reasoning and a dispute amongst them. Slow learner. Look at how the Lord replies. Because they're, they're talking amongst themselves. He says, what were you talking about on the way? And of course, they didn't want to tell him now. Because uh, now they kind of realize something. But he perceived their heart. And he takes a little child. And he sets him in the midst of them. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. Whosoever receiveth this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Didn't expect that. Confidence maybe is shattered just a bit. You know, maybe the Lord would have said, well, you know, I know what you're talking about, and just to get it straight, you know, I did take Peter, James, and John up with me, and, you know, there are some leadership qualities in these brethren, and, you know, they, they do know more than you, and, you know, they're more zealous than you, and, but he didn't say that. He didn't reinforce that m misunderstanding that they had. He told them that the least shall be the greatest. But it seems so clear for John. Remember, John tended toward black and white. Obvious things. And he sees himself as one who knows the truth and he picks up on things quickly. So I don't know that he expected that. And then when we come to um, verse 49, right? After the Lord tells him that, I don't know if this is a twinge of conscience or... John's still not learning. But he says, John answered, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And he puts that out to the Lord. So I said, I'm, I, I don't know if John's got it all figured out now. Is he looking for the Lord's approval? Or is he suspecting after what the Lord just said that maybe he went too far with this man? Either way, his one-dimensional view is shaken again. And by the way, it becomes obvious, John doesn't know as much as John thinks he knows, even about the word. Perhaps before he would have acted on that man and bade him to forbade him, he would have known his Bible and he would have gone to Numbers chapter 11 at verse 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, wasn't Moses just revealed to him in the mount? Could have maybe given him a quick echo there. Is the Lord's hand waxen short that thou now, that thou see now whether my word shall come to pass or not? And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and they gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spake unto him, and he took the spirit that was upon him, and he gave it to the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. 
Verse 26, Numbers 11 says, But there remained two men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle. And they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses, and he said, Eldad and Medad, do you prophesy in the camp? There's one that's casting out devils in your name. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said, Envious thou for my sake? Envious thou for my sake? Would God that the Lord's, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. And Jesus said to John, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Mark's record adds, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall cause one of these little ones that believe on me to stumble, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. John's got to be thinking about himself here. Did I just do this? He's talking to me. Did, did I just do this? Did I miss this whole thing with Moses and Joshua, Eldad and Medad? How could I have missed this? And for the Lord to talk to me this way. Somehow, though, John knows that now, I think, what he's doing is not seeming to come together very well. Wasn't he one of the chosen to go to the mountain of the glorious vision? Perhaps John's starting to get it. Perhaps he's starting to mature. Maybe he sees the picture of the Lord's painting. John, once again, you need to take another step back. You're going to go forward eventually. Right now, another step back. You don't know everything, and you're still missing some important aspects in your understanding. So if we keep going in Luke, at verse 51 now, and it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, talking about Jesus, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure how long the time passed between these events. Maybe not that long, but sometime. But that transfiguration, that, that vision, that would have been just emblazoned in his mind. And just what the Lord had said to him, gave him that example, that probably would have echoed now out of Moses in Joshua's day. He was going to go through Samaria, but the Samarian, Samaritans wouldn't receive him. So John, along with James, he jumps in with both feet again. You've got to love this brother. I mean, he's trying. You know, he's, he's really trying. He's, he's got to figure it out. He jumps in with both feet. Um, I got it now. There's Moses, Elijah. I'll take the vision of Elijah now, and I'm going to apply Elijah. He didn't get it right with Moses, but I'll, get it, I'll figure it out now. Lord, here it goes. I don't think he's even hesitating. Lord, because he's very confident. Will thou come that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? 
See, I got it. It's Moses. I missed that one, but I got it with Elijah. Verse 52. But he turned. The Lord turned to him. Put yourself there. Imagine if this happens to you, you know. You hear this from the side, and the Lord Jesus, you hear this from the side, he's, he didn't get it. He missed it again. He turns at him, and he looks at him, and he rebukes him. And he says, you know not what manner of spirit ye are. John's got to be shaking his head. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went to another village. Went all the way around. Now when we look at the life of John in the Lord's ministry, we're still not sure that he's getting it. And the Lord is pretty direct. The Lord isn't mincing any words with John. We see him and James just a little shortly after doing what? Asking for seats of prominence. It's a good thing to want to be beside the Lord. But there was a, a personal ambition, not just to be in the kingdom, but to be on the left and then be on the right. And, and that little encounter caused others to be moved with indignation concerning them. And of course, in that situation, we know that Jesus instructs them again, all of them, to be servants one of another. And the same contention about who be the greatest comes up after the final meal in the upper room. And again, he says, he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that does serve. And as Jesus departs for Gethsemane, John is again among the three. We're getting closer to the final lessons for John. And he's chosen as those final three to go a little further with the Lord as he prays. And they were simply told to watch. And of course we know when he comes back on the first time, there is sleep. And there is sleep again. Could ye not watch? Could ye not watch? Well, the lesson from the Lord for John was that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. John, I know it's in there. I know it's in you. I know you have the zeal and the, the passion and the drive and the ambition and the confidence. But I also know, and you need to know, John, the flesh is weak. And you've got another dimension, another level to develop here. It's all of us, brothers and sisters. It's not just this situation with John. That just happened to be his challenge. It could be us on the opposite side of the coin with some other challenge. There's not one of us that this doesn't apply to, myself most of all. And I believe it comes shortly after this, brothers and sisters, that when John now finally sees the injustice, because you know, everybody withdrew from Christ when those... And those soldiers came, didn't they? They all fled. And it appears that it's, it's John that helps Peter get into that inner court to see what's going on. And he hears all the goings on. He sees the injustice. He sees the Lord just taking it. 
He thinks about the words. He thinks about the transfiguration. He thinks about all the learning. And then he stands there and he sees his Lord, the one who would be king, crucified. Cruelly spat upon, beaten, mocked, taking it. And then three days later, joyfully resurrected, miraculously resurrected. That the understanding of how deep the Lord's love for him was and all who would follow the master, that Jesus would die for them. To serve them. To save them. This son of thunder becomes transformed. Oh, he thunders again, but in a whole different way, brothers and sisters. He continues to promote the truth with zeal, but now he has the missing dimension because of what he saw, the dimension of love. Greater love hath no man than this. He records what the Lord said, but that he lay down his life for his friends. In his younger years, John's zeal for the truth was lacking in love. He was lacking compassion and impatience and kindness and gentleness and meekness, but he didn't get it. John was always committed to the truth, and there's nothing wrong with that. It is desired and it is much needed. It's maybe more needed now than ever. We are barraged in this world, brothers and sisters. I read from a newspaper from 1997, all right, and it said that less than one quarter, this was 1997, less than one quarter of the families in Canada raised children without any kind of religious background, serious religious background. That's scary. One quarter. Well, to give them some kind of general, you know, vague thing, but not religious, not with Christ at the center, not with God in the picture. So it is necessary. But on its own, as John came to learn, it wasn't enough. The zeal for the truth had to be balanced for the love of people, in particular for Christ's brothers and sisters. Truth without love is no decency. It was cold and it could be brutal. And on the other hand, love without truth, it has no character. It has no substance. It can be just utter hypocrisy. Many people can be just as imbalanced as John, <coughs> only in the other direction. They place so much emphasis on love that they forget that there is anything true, that it, it really doesn't matter. And that's why we do talks, that it matters what you believe. Real love does not rejoice in iniquity, it says, but it rejoices in truth. And on the other hand, how can one know the doctrine but miss, as John did for a while, that there is no real truth without love, as described in the Word. Know the truth and uphold it in love. A dear a dear, dear brother of mine and brother in Christ and uncle in the truth, Brother Tony Giordano, we were blessed to have opportunity to, uh, to meet with him. It was very sudden, and uh, we just a week before, Sister Nanshine had an opportunity to meet with Brother Tony and Sister Esther. And uh, 
after that meeting, he, he kept saying, you know, whatever you do, go to the Word. Go to the Word. And it, and it gave me pause to think about that, because in that Word, especially the Word that John wrote, he, he brought it all together. And I went back home, and when I got back home, I was going through some notes. It's kind of funny how that works. It's, um, there was notes from a talk he had given, I don't know how many years ago. It was just kind of popped out there. It didn't have it indexed or anything else. It was just kind of trying to organize some things, and there it was. And there was a little statement on there that, that struck me. And it, it struck me in relation to this, um, this lesson about John. He said, it's not enough to have a statement of faith. You must become a statement of faith. And I, I look at my dear brother Tony, and I know that's what he was, a statement of faith. Pray that we can live to that. That saying, and, and John says the same thing. John came to understand the necessity of love when he finally considered what Jesus did for him. Four times in John's gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom the Lord loved. You know, when I, when I first read that years ago, I thought, well, kind of setting himself apart from everybody. But he wasn't saying that he loved me more than anybody else but rather John fully appreciated. He never said his name in his book, did he, in the gospel? Just said, the one whom the Lord loved. He was humbled by the fact that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ loved him, that he gave his life for him. And so every time he refers to himself, he, he's, you know, think about that if you were to refer to yourself. Yeah, I'm the one whom the Lord loves. How would that transform you? How would that change the way your attitude with everything else around you? I'm one of the ones whom the Lord loves. And you're one of the ones whom the Lord loves. He's, he's called us all out of this world. Jesus transformed John's understanding of the truth. And most of the time when John writes of truth, we also see that it wasn't just what one knows but what one does. In John 3 and 21, down from that other passage we all know as a memory verse, he says, but he that doeth truth comes to the light. And in 2 John verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found that my children wa are walking in truth. Walking in truth. As we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, Brothers and sisters, not as though I wrote to you a new commandment unto thee. I know you're already going to that hymn, aren't you? And we're not singing that hymn today, but your mind's already there, so you've already sung it. But that which we had from the beginning, that we'd love one another. And this is love, that we keep his commandments. We noted earlier that John used the word truth some 45 times. 45 five times in his gospel and his, his epistles. And now we note, brothers and sisters, that he also used the word love more than 80 times in those same writings. He got the message. The two must be there together. John also used another word as we close, brothers and sisters. He used the word witness, something for another talk, more than 70 times or almost 70 times. You see, with love and truth, we can be 
the true witness for Christ. John initially had half of the picture and the formula, and then he had the whole picture, the whole formula. And I can relate to our brother John in his early days. When it all seems easy, just the facts mattered. Love is hard. But now we're blessed, brothers and sisters, that our brother John has revealed more fully the love of the Father and that of the Son. There is hope for me in weakness if I'm prepared to learn at the Master's feet as he did. In John 15, verse 12, he wrote, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And John fully appreciated that. Here is the love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation, a covering, atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And the verse that we can't leave out. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We now remember our Lord.